you would, uh, take your Bibles with me and turn to Isaiah chapter 9, please. Isaiah chapter 9. I want to read our passage again that we read last week, verses 6 through 7. The text will be in for at least a couple more sermons here um, in this section of Isaiah. And so let's read verses 6 and 7 again. This is what the Word of God declares. A child will be born to us. A son will be given to us. And the government will rest on his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor. Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of His government or of peace on the throne of David and over His kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Let's pray one more time and ask God to really bless us today. Father, we're so grateful that we can sing of that glorious hope that we have when we will see that great eternal day. Extending out before us, Lord, will be the kingdom of Jesus Christ. For all eternity, we will see the increase of His government of righteousness and of peace. And we will always see good days. Lord, we can't wait. So marvelous and so glorious. And Lord, we know that this future is secured for us by the merits of your Son, by his person, and by his work. Such, Lord, that we do not need to worry. But as Peter assures us, we have this hope steadfast, and is reserved for us in heaven. And so, Lord, we're thankful today, Lord, that we have such a surety in our Lord Jesus and what he has done. Lord, we pray that you would magnify his person and work here today, that you would show us what it means for him to be mighty, what it means for him to be God, God of very God. And Lord, we pray that you would Uh, bring us into greater understanding, conformity to your word now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, I have a little book in my library that you might find to be curious. It's a little book by a gentleman by the name of Zaid Kutub. Zaid Kutub is uh, one of the men who is uh, credited for being a founding member of the Muslim Brotherhood. He's written a little book called Milestones, or Signs Along the Path. And in this little book, little maybe 100-page little book, is a manual on jihad, written for jihadists, for Muslims. And one of the principles of the book is Tawheed, which means God is one. And Tawheed is the foundation upon which jihad is built. And that's kind of weird to us. 
Because if you would transfer that over to Christian language, it'd be like us saying the Trinity is the language upon which spiritual warfare is done. Or let's go back to the Old Testament. The Trinity is the basis for the conquest of Canaan. Be like, how? <laughs> but you see in Zaid Qutb's theology, the oneness of Allah meant that human beings under the sovereign reign and rule and dominion of Allah have been liberated to serve under the power of God alone. And so in terrorist acts where you can see videos like I've seen where upon killing someone in an act of jihad, you will see a Muslim raise his finger and declare Tawheed, which to us would be like raising your finger and shouting the Trinity. Tawheed means that that jihadist does what he does having been liberated by God from all human servitude whatsoever. And so what he's declaring is, I serve God alone. When you talk to Muslims today about the gospel, one of the main stumbling blocks for a Muslim is the concept of power. They see in the Christian language mainly a message of weakness. They see Jesus as the symbol of an impossible contradiction. How can Almighty God, the God who rules and reigns and liberates us to, to serve Him only, because after all, He is Almighty God. How can that God then come down, put on human flesh, live a human life, wear human clothing, eat human food, go to the restroom, need sleep, need to recover from sickness or health or everything else. It is inconceivable weakness. They cannot conceive of a worldview where God is so weak. That's the way they think. When I was in London in the year 2000, I was there with a friend, a Muslim scholar friend of mine, and we were doing evangelism down by Big Ben. And there you have 24-7 dawah, Muslim evangelism, 24-7, where Muslims are out in the town square, table after table after table after table after table, stacks of Qurans and Muslim literature, and literature on jihad and everything else. And unlike the West, the Muslims in Europe are not so domesticated. Uh, you can hear the Muslims shouting at people that are walking by, telling women to put on a uh, hajib, and very, very militant evangelism. I remember one guy, we actually have him on video, saying, how can God go to the restroom? 
Enter in the prophet Isaiah. Part of the description of the Messiah here is the title, Mighty God. So the Muslim argument against what they perceive to be Christian weakness is unfounded if what Isaiah says here is right. And of course he is. The word mighty God, El Gibor in the Hebrew, is a fascinating study because unlike other books of the Old Testament, in the book of Isaiah, the the ascription of God here, El, is only used of Yahweh. There are other places in where El is used of less than divine beings, angels, men, kings, that are described in divine categories only and insofar as they fulfill some sort of divine agency. And usually that's a compound word of some kind. But here in the book of Isaiah, the word El is reserved only for God, for Yahweh. And so E.J. Young says, El is a designation reserved for the true God and for Him alone. That is why in Isaiah 31, verse 3, the contrast is even made of those who are not El and who El is. Let me read it to you. Isaiah 31, verse 3. Now the Egyptians are men and not El. That couldn't be any clearer. And their horses are flesh and not spirit, so the Lord will stretch out His hand. So clearly a distinction is made between mere mortals and not God. Again, Isaiah 10, verse 21 A remnant will return, and the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty El. It's kind of like backwards, right? The mighty God. Uh, And so, when the Messiah here is spoken of as El, in keeping with the theology of Isaiah, it cannot mean anything other than than that he will be God of very gods. But did you see something developing in the theology of Isaiah here? Uh, Liberal scholarship would want to proceed with great caution at this point, not willing to make any sort of New Testament connections for fear of some sort of theological anachronism where we sort of read New Testament concepts back into the Old Testament text in some sort of hasty zeal, theological zeal. But If we see the reference here of what is emerging with this reference here to God, what is emerging before our very eyes is a decisively high Christological formulation. Why? Because from the references of the Messiah as a child and being born, now the shift moves from that and turns to the Messiah as constituting 
God of very God, so that what you have here now is Isaiah, in essence, giving us an undeniable hypostatic construction. There is one who will be a child who will be born, i.e., human, man of very man. And now we are told that man of very man, that human of very human, will also be God of very God. And later he will go so far as to say is that he is, in fact, the father of eternity. And we'll get into that. Remember, one title at a time. And so Crazy Heritage Grace doing one title at a time in Isaiah, but I can do no other because these uh, titles are so monumental, so massive. The implications are so huge regarding the person and work of Jesus Christ that we have to understand that what is emerging in front of our eyes is, the, is, is an early Christological construction of the human nature and the divine nature of Jesus Christ and the result of which is the incarnate Lagos of the New Testament. In order to better understand his status as mighty God, however, we need to see this from different aspects, different aspects of his work revealed in Scripture because, brothers and sisters, apart from Scripture, we cannot even begin to describe him as our mighty God. As mighty God, then for, therefore, we can expect for him to be three things. You ready? Simple outline that we all can follow. Number one, he is mighty God as creator. Number two, he is mighty God as redeemer. And number three, you might expect it, he is mighty God as consummator. And that all has to do with the context of Isaiah chapter 9. All of those. So number one, the fact that he is creator. If he is God, then he is the creator, the creator of heaven and earth. What's interesting about this text, or even about this, uh, this passage here, is that the word here, mighty, can either be used as a noun or it could be used adjectivally. He is mighty, right? He is a mighty God, or he is might. And so, depending on how you use the term, it can go either way. Uh, what we're looking at here is a word that is typically used in context of heroic uh, bravery or something like that, like a brave warrior. Uh, matter of fact, many of the commentators translate the word mighty as hero, so that what em emerges is the hero god is what is being said here. Interesting, interesting. But as we develop that, and we will, what also has to be reckoned with is his title to divinity. Gibor is one thing, but El is another thing. We have to reckon with both. And as God, as the pre-incarnate Christ, the Word of God, the Logos, the wisdom of God, Jesus is unmistakably described in the language of the Creator, the architect of the world. Which it's almost like if you're going to describe His deity, His divinity, where else can you begin but the fact that He created everything. And so turn with me in your Bibles to two passages. John chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. You know this text. You can, most of you can rattle it off by memory. Okay, maybe not most of you, but you should. 
These are two very preeminent passages here, but John 1, verses 1 through 4, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him. And apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. Just incredible, impossible passage of Scripture. I had to really resist the temptation to go for the next half hour just on that. But not only does this text serve to illustrate the Word's power as Creator, but also it serves to emphasize the multi-personal nature of God. That is, that the grammar of John here teaches this, without boring you with all the grammatical details of the impersonal verb, or the uh, uh, um, imperfect verb here, but basically what he's saying is this, when the beginning began, the Word already was in some sort of with God relationship, pros theon. He was in some sort of directional, relational, some kind of reciprocal relationship with someone else, namely God. And as the context in verses 14 through 18 will make very clear, this relationship is one of father and son. And so from the beginning, when the beginning began, the Word, pre-incarnate Christ, by the way, you guys go searching this out for me if you would, very little has been done in the area of the pre-incarnate Christ. Very little. Go around and look at how many books you can find just on the concept dealing with Christ in His pre-incarnate form, in His pre-incarnate state. Even form is a bad word because at that time he was disembodied. Nobody. The scripture knows nothing of a generic concept of God, in other words. From the very beginning, here it is unmistakable that the Apostle John is looking to parallel Moses in the Pentateuch by the opening phrase, NRK. In the beginning. Why? Because if you look at the Old Testament in Greek, the Old Testament also begins in the Greek text, NRK. So there, John, the prologue of John, imaging the prologue of Genesis. And what he wants to say is that right there at that critical point, that begin, that entry point of creation, already we are confronted with the nature of God, and the nature of God is multipersonal. He is not generically a God. We have no right as Christians to ever suggest that, well, first we want to move from general theism and then somewhere down the line, after all the logic and debating is over, then at last we arrive at Trinitarianism. That's not the way John looks at it. John immediately begins to speak of God as a multi-personal, relational God as Father and Son. God is always triune, not only from all eternity, from the opening chapters of Genesis, but in the New Testament, that's exactly what we get. We can say this. 
In the Old Testament, what we're confronted with is the multipersonal God, where the Son is God, the Father is God, and the Spirit of God. In the New Testament, what we're told is that the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Spirit is God. And in the Old Testament, we are told there is one God. In the New Testament, we are told there is one God. Where do you think the Trinity came from? Because the only possible grammatical, theological, and logical deduction is that we have one God eternally existing as three distinct persons. Is your mind blown yet? Yeah, mine was a long time ago. But it doesn't matter because that is how God reveals himself. It is a matter of revelation. As the mighty God, the Messiah comes as the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, and as it says there in John, nothing is made apart from Him. While John's prologue makes it very clear that everything is made through the Word, through the Logos, through, through the Son, through Jesus, Colossians now, turn to Colossians chapter 1, Colossians now will elucidate even further the details of this, the power of God, the power of God in creation, the power of Christ, the preeminence of Christ over all creation. And these are two parallel texts. Notice, Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Now, the word firstborn does not mean like the Jehovah Witnesses would have you to believe he is the first created thing. It's not giving you a sequence here. He's giving you an ontological description. The firstborn of all creation means that he is first in the sense of preeminent, rank, priority, not in terms of sequence. For uh, that's what it means to be the firstborn, to be the prototokos, to be the preeminent one. In other words, it's simple parallel. Verse 16, for by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him. This is the part that Colossians adds, and for him. That's a for him. I think that's a dative of advantage. But in verse 17, it says, He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. In other words, what you see here is that Christ, the pre-incarnate Christ, who is the image of God, is credited, brothers and sisters, with creating everything that you see and everything that you don't see, everything that is visible and everything that is invisible. In other words, he creates, well, let's look at the construction here. Watch very, very carefully. He says, heavens and earth. And then the parallel idea is visible invisible. And so visible refers to earth. So earth here symbolizes what we could call the universe, which is interesting because that's exactly what happens in the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 1, verses uh, 3 and following, everything, is, everything begins from earth. Space comes from earth. It's not the cosmology we have of today's modern science, okay? It's not the way the thinkers thought, okay? It's not like it's said, like, it's not, you know, Scripture does not say, well, God created the, 
space and the planets and all of that, and then he made the earth. That would make more sense to us, right? It actually goes from a geocentric way out, which is amazing. How do you know that for certain? Well, because in day four, what does it say? He made the stars also. So everything originated from earth. So the visible is what we can see in our visible universe, and the invisible is parallel to the heaven that is referred to here. And the heavens here, therefore, is not referring to space, stars, planets, things like that, matter. That is not what he is talking about in terms of invisible. He is talking about the invisible realm, the heavens, the realm of angels, the glory realm, all of that, so that the Word, the Logos, the Son, the Messiah, the mighty God has created everything, not just that you see here, but everything in the realm that you don't see, which is the heavenly realms. I'll just kind of fathom that. If your mind is not blown yet, what this scripture is saying, brothers and sisters, is that Jesus Christ, in his pre-incarnate state, created heaven. And he populated it with angels and whatever else is in heaven. Do you want to come up here and take over? (laughs) I think Meredith Klein calls it the glory epiphanic stuff of heaven. Okay, I'm not going to do any better than that. But you know what I mean. The supernal realm, the heavenly realm, the realm of glory, he is credited as creating all of that. And not just in terms of creation, but in the exhibition of his power over creation when he was in creation. For example, think of the phenomenon of miracles. Miracles. Now, miracles have been hotly debated over the centuries in terms of how they seem to violate the natural law, the law of nature, the uniformity of nature. I mean, there's not a skeptic or agnostic or atheist alive that will concede the idea of a miracle. And yet, that is exactly what Scripture teaches. But I want to make a slight observation here that I learned from Herman Bovink in his systematic theology. That the first to ever point out to me that, in fact, miracles are not so much the violation of, natural, of the natural order as much as it is the obe- obedience of a higher order. So that when we can say that when a miracle transpired, it was not a chaotic event. It was actually a supra-ordered event. It was an event that followed the supernatural order, in other words, so that we could even say it was on earth as it is in heaven. And so what do we see? Well, we see... Jesus doing this in his power over creation and the calming of the storm. Matthew chapter 8, verse 27. What manner of man is this that even the waves obey him? Walking on the water in Matthew chapter 14, verse 25. They saw him walking on the water and so much so that these men, skilled, experienced fishermen, thought he was a phantasm. They couldn't have been Jesus' physical, literal body walking on the water now, could it? When he walked over the water there, I think it was the fulfillment of Old Testament imagery. They're just showing his sovereignty over the realm of chaos. Also in his healing of diseases in Luke chapter 4, verse 40, a couple things happen there. But in Luke 4, verse 40, it says that all manner of diseases that were diseased people were being brought to him and he was healing all of them. 
And it even distinguishes between people who had diseases, epilepsy, and people who were demon-possessed. He was healing all of that. And of course, we see that in his raising Lazarus from the dead, in, in other words, in his ability to resurrect the dead. His turning of water into wine, his own resurrection and his own ascension, all of these things show Jesus' absolute supremacy and power over the created order. Oh, wish that we could stay there all day. Uh, you see why I'm doing one title at a time? It's like one aspect of the title at a time now. <laughs> but uh, the next thing is this, is not only is he the mighty messianic creator, but number two, he is also the mighty messianic redeemer, which is now we're getting even closer to the exact context of Isaiah and what Isaiah is thinking about, that this messianic figure, this child, this son to be born, this king to come will also be the redeemer of God's people. Redemption is always the language of deliverance, the language of rescue. But they are not separated. It was in the very context of his miracles, his miraculous power, that his redemptive power was also put on display. I'll show you one passage. Luke chapter 5. A story that you guys all know. We love to tell this story to our children in uh, ch children's school, uh, uh, Sunday school, or in their Bible books. It's the story of the man, the paralytic, who's let down through the roof of the house. Remember? <laughs> he's let down through the roof of the house, and the desperation of the nature of that man's faith was revealed to be rooted in saving faith. By the way, go back yourself. And go study that for a moment because I thought, okay, um, something is afoot there because this is not the faith of fanatics. This is not the faith of just exhilarant thrill or zeal or exuberance or emotionalism or some sort of psychosomatic state of mind. Jesus identifies the man's faith as genuine saving faith. That's amazing to me because you think about that guy's state of mind. You know, there you are. You are, you are, uh, you know, you're bedridden for life and there you are and you're desperate. And I mean, you're, you're so desperate, you're digging a hole in the roof to go down. You're so desperate to get to him. And in the midst of all of that, that man was granted saving faith. It's just, there's a whole nother thing going on there. But, but, but here it's where Jesus says, friend, your sins are forgiven. In other words, it was in this very context of a miracle where the declaration of your sins have been forgiven are met with cries of blasphemy. Who can forgive sins but God alone, Luke 5, 21. And in verse 22, it says, Jesus, aware of their reasoning, answered and said to them, why are you reasoning in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins have been forgiven you? Or to say, get up and walk. But so that you know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, get up, pick up your stretcher and go home. Remarkable. What Jesus is doing here is putting these people who are doubting his identity and doubting his signs and wonders, 
he's putting them in an impossible conundrum. Which one is easier to say? Which one is easier to substantiate? An act of creation? Get up and walk? You think that's easy? (laughs) Healing the blind, raising the dead, performing miracles, healing disease. Is that easier to debunk? Or is it easier to debunk your sins are forgiven? Jesus is basically saying, take your pick. (laughs) Because I am creator and I am redeemer. I forgive sins and I make well. I make whole. I make a new creation. So take your pick on which one you want to try to debunk because in reality, the reality is is that his redemption and his power are coextensive. They originate from the same source of omnipotent sovereign power. For Israel, God's redemption is rooted and situated in the historical deliverance of the people of, of Israel from Egypt. You know that. The Exodus is Old Testament redemption, and that redemption was accompanied by signs and wonders. And in the New Testament, this Exodus, Exodus event is also, also associated with Jesus. Look at Jude, verse 5. Maybe a text that you guys know. But in Jude, verse 5, there is no way around the text as I see it, as I have studied it, whether you take There's a a variant here. Whether you take the variant as inserting the word Jesus or inserting the word Lord, either way, even the reference to the Lord is a reference to Jesus, according to most of the commentators. What am I talking about? Jude, verse 5. Now I desire to remind you, though you know all things once for all, I won't try to untangle that statement, you know all things once for all. That's interesting. Kind of demands some commentary. But I'm going to leave you hanging and say that what matters here is what, we're, what the next phrase says, that the Lord, now in many of the Greek manuscripts, and I think it's the right reading. If you, you have an ESV, it says Jesus, right? And so uh, that's because it sides with those manuscripts that have the word Jesus. And so it says, Jesus, after saving a people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe. That changes your view of Exodus, doesn't it? That what you're reading there in the Pentateuch is actually the work of Jesus. He is bringing the people out of Egypt. That's tremendous. This historical event was but a prelude to the ultimate exodus, the true deliverance of God's people, not from the power of a foreign enemy, but from the enemy within. That is, the enemy of our own sin. And so that's why He is the mighty messianic redeemer. He delivers us not from dominions of Egypt or Babylon or communism, but He delivers us from the dominion of sin, This source of this redemptive power, therefore, is rooted in the life of the mighty God Himself. Turn with me in your Bibles just to illustrate this idea of redemption and of the power and of the might of Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 7, beginning in verse 14. Because the life and the power that we cannot give to ourselves is provided for us in the atoning work of Jesus Christ, whose life is described as 
indestructible. I love that. Look with me because there's a little bit of theology here, but look with me to Hebrews chapter 7, beginning in verse 14. It is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, a tribe with reference to which Moses spoke nothing concerning priests. This is, this is clear still if another priest arises according to the likeness of Melchizedek, who has, because, who has become such not on the basis of the law of the physical requirement, that's the Levitical law, but according to a different law, the power of an indestructible life. That is what the enigma of Genesis 14 is all about. The reference to Melchizedek. You read Melchizedek in Genesis 14. Let's say you're just a casual reader of the book of Genesis. You get to chapter 14. You're like, okay, here's this guy Melchizedek. The Bible says nothing about him, where he came from, who he is, what, nothing. And, and then guess what? After Genesis chapter 14, you will not see Melchizedek for 1,000 more years in the Bible. Where? That's a quiz. Psalm 110, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. The enigma, the mystery of Melchizedek's origins are meant to cause us to think he doesn't originate from the law. He doesn't come from the Levitical line. Who was this guy? Well, he is a metaphor a type, to be exact, of the indestructible, powerful life of Jesus Christ. And it says, for it is attested of him, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, I'm going to read, keep, keep, stay with me here, verse 18 to 19, because it's, it's important. For on the one hand, there is a setting aside of former commandment because of its weakness and uselessness. What an interesting way of talking about the old covenant. Almost sounds pejorative right? Weakness and uselessness. Wow. What right does the author of Hebrews to use such dismissive language of the old covenant? Didn't God read or didn't God write the old covenant? With the, wasn't it written with the finger of God? And here the author of Hebrews is saying now in light of the Melchizedekian priesthood and the indestructible life of Jesus Christ, the old covenant has been rendered weak and useless. Wow. And he says, for the law made nothing perfect. To make nothing perfect means that something is capable of bringing things in harmony with their eschatological reality. You have to go back, maybe come up afterwards and ask me what I just meant by that, but that's what it is. In other words, it's the eschaton that our perfection, when it talks about Christ through his sacrifice, perfects us. It's not talking about sinless perfection. It's talking about turn, transferring a, our estate, going from non-righteous to righteous, non-holy to holy, non-consecrated to consecrated, being you know, part of this world or being part of the world to come, you know, being a member of the church that is enrolled above from Zion, the, you know, all of that. That's what it's talking about. The law could make nothing perfect, could bring nothing into harmony with that. On the other hand, there is a bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. And how do, so I read down to that point because what's the point of it all? The point of it all is being brought near to God. 
and to be brought near to God, what is the power that brings us near to God? It is the indestructible life of Jesus Christ. Oh, He was indestructible in the sense that in His deity, uh, He cannot die. And so be careful, you know, we all have the jokes, you know, the worship leaders up there playing, you know, and he just prays these blasphemous prayers, you know, God, I thank you for dying for me, you know, it's like God did not die. <laughs> the Bible doesn't teach that God can die, okay? Jesus, the man Jesus died, <laughs> okay, but not the deity of Jesus. The de deity cannot die. And so we have to get that straight. In his perfect life in obedience, there's a sense in which we can say because he was divine, he is indestructible. But probably more in keeping with what Hebrews is aiming at is that Jesus, having passed through the heavens, now exalted at the right hand of God, which is actually exactly what Psalm 110 is talking about, now that he's there enthroned at the right hand of God, he is in an indestructible life. He is indestructible by virtue of his exaltation and he has opened up a way for us. The mighty God has opened up a way for us permanently in contrast to the finite and limited access of the Levitical code. But there's more to it than that. He is a perfect, mighty, messianic creator. He is a perfect, mighty, messianic uh, redeemer. And last of all, he is a perfect, mighty, messianic consummator. And this really does get to what Isaiah is thinking. The hope that Isaiah is setting forth for the people that the one who comes is going to usher in a new creation and so i want to back up to something that i said last week but i didn't get a chance to finish uh, because of time but but really this is the heart of isaiah's message isaiah's message is not merely concerned with how god is going to temporally alleviate the needs of his people his message is essentially apocalyptic. His message is essentially eschatological. Isaiah's message is mainly heavenly. Doesn't it make sense? He just came from the heavenly vision, Isaiah chapter 6. And what was shown to him there in the glory realm was something of the reality of the kingdom of God in its consummate state where the kingdom of God, heaven, is revealed to Isaiah that what, what resides there is a sanctuary and a throne. That's the dominant reality that resides over all of existence is that God dwells enthroned in a sanctuary, in his temple, heaven. And so, eschatology is crucial to see this. Let me just say a couple of comments here. Because 
The new creation is in fact the key that unlocks the eschatology of Isaiah. Write it down, make note of it, understand it. The, the, the new creation is what really sheds ultimate and final light to all of this. You know, I was aghast the other night. I was watching a biblical theology lecture. It was a lot like what I'm teaching here right now, and it was being taught by Tom Schreiner. You know where he was? He was at the Master's Seminary. Little inside, uh, okay, let's just talk among ourselves here, you know, but <laughs> here's an amillennial covenantalist at the Master's Seminary teaching them covenant theology. That was just like, woohoo, woohoo. <laughs> and you know what he was saying? He was saying, why are we so obsessed with the millennium? He's telling the students this. I couldn't believe it. So I can't believe they let him say this. But he's like, we're going to the new creation. Like, whatever your millennial view is, that's not the, the, the last stop on the way. <laughs> you know what I mean? That's a pit stop. <laughs> Let's say we're all premillennialists. That's a pit stop. We're heading to the new heavens and the new earth. And that is where we'll be for endless ages. Do you believe it? So... The, the, uh, the new creation is not a rehearsal of this creation. It is not a renovation of this creation. It is not the enhancement of this creation either. Because it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 that this world is passing away. 1 John chapter 2 verse 17, the form of this world is also passing away. 1 Peter chapter 3 verses 1 through 13, we look for what? New heavens new earth. And as this crazy, crazy world dissolves around us, I mean, dude, Donald Trump is the president of the United States. How low did you wake up in the twilight zone? <laughs> did you hear that they edited him out of Home Alone? Did you hear that? Did you hear that? Right? They were going to run like a rerun of Home Alone, and they edited him out of That's so I mean, anyway. This world is crazy. And as Peter says, it will dissolve. It will melt. It will, it will be destroyed. And what's our hope then? Peter says, we look for a new heavens and a new earth. That's what we're looking for that, Right? Canaan shore, that eternal day, that's what we're looking for. And so therefore, it is the new creation. And if we fail to see the connection here with the new creation, the creation that God will create, if we fail to see the connection between the new creation, you go back to uh, Isaiah chapter 9, and the Davidic promises of Isaiah in relationship to the Messiah, we will have either an over-realized eschatology leading to post-millennialism, reconstructionism, theonomy, or we will have an under-realized eschatology, premillennialism, historic premillennialism, or Zionism. <clears throat> Not to be overly dogmatic here, but both are wrong. Neither will do. 
only if we see the king and the kingdom in the proper tension, brothers and sisters, of an already not yet dynamic, the very dynamic that in the life of ministry of Jesus, the people did not get, the apostles did not get, and the early church did not get, the already and the not yet. Why do you think even after the resurrection in Acts chapter 1, the apostles are asking Jesus, now will you restore the kingdom to Israel? Now will we see the grand enchilada of all this, right? And he's saying, you misunderstood. You've got at least 2,000 more years to go. As you live in the interim, and in the interim expect trials, sufferings, crushings. What does Paul say? Uh, Acts chapter 14, we are appointed to tribulations and to suffering. Know that in the kingdom you'll have this. And because if you don't understand that, then you're caught off guard. Oh no, what is the, what is the culture doing? What is the world doing? What is my body doing to me? Yeah. I've been thinking of that a lot. Uh, as someone who deals with very minor aches and pains, and I won't get into that. But our sister Crystal is dealing with major pain in the hospital right now, maybe needing another surgery. I look at Crystal and I just think, the whole gospel is right there in her life. Almost 90 surgeries from birth. I hate this world. I hate this world. I hate the fact that our sister as dear and nice as Crystal has to go through 90 surgeries in her life because her mom was on crack. And when she was born, all her insides were born, were, were born outside. And so they've been trying to stitch her back together ever since she's been alive. I hate this world. Things like that happen. I hate seeing a commercial with abused animals. You don't you hate those? They try to get money and all that. You know, I look at them and I'm just like, ugh, I hate it, I hate it, I hate it. And so we look for new heavens and new earth and the Messiah to come. He will usher in this new heaven and new earth. Although Jesus ushers in a new creation at His birth, His baptism, His death and resurrection, these are inaugural events. But they do not progress and climax in the present age into the consummate kingdom of God. The consummate kingdom awaits the final conflict, brothers and sisters, of the seed and the serpent, saints and sinners, Christ and Antichrist, the conflict that Meredith Klein calls the battle for Armageddon, the ultimate point of supremacy in the world. That is something that is yet future. I've got so much stuff here. I want you to turn with me because as we think about eschatology, as we think about the consummate state, it is appropriate for us to think that he who is the consummate, the, the messianic consummator, is also celebrated as such. So turn with me to Revelation chapter 15 as we draw things to a, almost to a close. But as we're getting toward the end here, I do not want to fail to point out that he will be worshipped for being that messianic consummator 
and that will happen for all ages. And I picked for you Revelation chapter 15. You know why? Because in Revelation chapter 15, verses 1 through 4, what is brought into view is both the history of redemption, what theologians call the Historia Salutis, and then the, the, uh, the plan uh, or the, uh, uh, the order of redemption, what theologians call the Order Salutis. So listen carefully. You have the Historia Salutis and the Order Salutis here both implied in the consummate state. You have the, 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 the whole history of redemption being brought to its consummate end. And you have the order of our salvation, the Order Salutis, brought to its point of glorification. And, and it's all celebrated right here in Revelation. Beginning in verse 2, I saw something like a sea of glass mixed with fire. And those who had been victorious over the beast and his image and the number of his name standing on the sea of glass holding harps of God. Wow, the imagery there, right? And they sang the song of Moses which takes us back to Exodus 15. The bondservant of God and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are your works, O Lord, the Almighty. It's like the Isaiah, mighty, the El Gabor, mighty God being celebrated here. Righteous and true are your ways, King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy, and all the nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. All of God's righteous deeds. When it says your righteous acts have been revealed, it's something like your deeds have been revealed for what they are. Right now, they're hidden. Right now, what does the, the psalmist say? I think it's Psalm 25. The secret of the Lord are with those that fear Him, and He reveals His covenant to them. And so your neighbor does not have the covenant revealed to them. They do not, they're not in on the secret. You can only know the secret of the Lord through a vital communion bond with Him of fellowship. That's the only way that you know now. But when the consummation comes, all of the deeds of the Lord will be revealed for all to see. Jesus, mighty in power, His deeds known from of old, His warrior qualities seen in His, what I said was, His heroic solidarity with His people. Hebrews chapter 2 says, He is not ashamed to be called our brethren to call us his brethren. He is not ashamed to call us his brethren. And so what that leads to, brothers and sisters, is this, is that the mighty God, this messianic creator, redeemer, and consummator, he is the one who will conquer all our enemies, both in the spiritual realm, the cosmic forces of darkness, those sort of spiritual hosts of wickedness beyond human perception, beyond the physical world, the temporal world, and into the supernal realm, the heavenly dimensions. But Jesus is also, and simultaneously, listen now, He is also our warrior, our hero, our overcomer now. Turn with me to Romans chapter 8. I promise I, I won't take you, well, I better not, he who, vows and does not keep 
<laughs> just because I want you to see it. But he also stands in solidarity with us, brothers and sisters, not just in redemption, but also in sanctification. In other words, in our daily lives, in the muck, in the mire of everyday life, Jesus is not ashamed to call us his brethren. And Romans chapter 8, in the midst of it all, this is what I'm thinking, is, 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 is we are not good at, at, at thinking about how do we conquer with him now, how does Crystal, laying on that bed right now, how does she, to use the language here of Romans 8 verse 37, how does she overwhelmingly conquer? Is that just like a sensational type thing? Is that just like a sentimental Christianese word so she'll feel better? No, it's not. It is in a state it is that this is a declaration holistically of her life. And what this is saying is come hell or high water, come cancer or another surgery, no matter what comes her way, she does overwhelmingly conquer in Him. And so Jesus says, in this world, you know it, you will have tribulation but take courage. I will deliver you from all your little tribulations. No. I, as the mighty God, overcome the world. The world can swallow you up and spit you out. The world can chew you up. And sin can chew you up. And the devil can chew you up. And disease can chew you up and tear you up. And the culture can tear you up. And unless you have a vital relationship with Jesus Christ, you will not conquer the world. The tribulation that you go through in this life, isn't it maddening, brothers and sisters, as we look around at the suffering of the people? You want to know, you want to get in touch with the fact that you overwhelmingly conquer? Think of the unsaved at this moment in time that we're talking about. They go through cancer. They go, there's a children's hospital right here off of what, Preston? filled with children, I don't know how we're not in there, I don't know how I'm not in there, filled with children in hospital rooms that are dying of various diseases. The, the, just look at what's going, I mean, and think about, not only do you get these tribulations, but you have no way to conquer them. This is the beginning of this is the beginning of tribulation for you. This is only the beginning of sorrow for you. This is just the beginning of judgment for you. And so now in light of that, now think of your relation, your saving relationship with Jesus Christ and tell me that you do not overwhelmingly conquer. You overwhelmingly conquer through Him. Not apart from Him. Just like nothing that was made is made apart from Him, none of your victory is apart from Him. Nothing, 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 nothing whatsoever. Nothing. He's everything for you. And, uh, oh man, I just uh, tempted to preach another sermon. Let's pray. Let's pray before I do because I'm already getting like these kind of looks and, you know, these kind of looks and these kind of looks. Oh, <laughs> Father God, we thank you for the Lord Jesus. Where would we be without our 
messianic, mighty God. Without what He has done, without His perfect righteousness, without His perfect power, His provision, His providence, and without His perfect future and hope that He has provided for us through death, burial, resurrection, His exaltation to the right hand of God, and His pouring out of the Spirit upon His church. Apart from this, Lord, all these temporal ups and downs will just leave us disillusioned, dissatisfied, bitter, confused, but if we look to the consummation of a new creation, what he really has ushered in, then we have a hope that it's steadfast, as Hebrews says, beyond the, beyond the veil, cannot be shaken, cannot be lost, and we hold on to that as we hold on to our Savior in Jesus' name. Amen.